0: Well, church family, uh, before I jump into uh, today's message and kind of wrap up a series that we've been doing, because we've been in a cool series called Engage, I just want to let you know, I just got back uh, not long ago uh, from Georgia. And while I was down there, you can turn me down some. It's okay. Bring me down, bring me down, bring me down. You're good, Aaron. Y'all give Aaron a hand. He's uh, He is commanding the uh, AV board back there, and he's doing a good job. So, uh, it's my fault, Aaron. He's needs to be near my mouth, man. You just got to tell me. He said, dude, put it near your mouth, and that'll make it better, right? All right. So I got back from Georgia recently, and I, was get, I got to hang out with 200 church planters from across our country. I want to show you a picture of this, because I think it's something that you might uh, be able to get excited about. 200 different church planters from across our entire nation planting in all kinds of different areas. Hawaii, Alaska, Georgia, Maryland, Delaware—all across. Uh, one guy uh, that I met, and here's something that should uh, surprise you: when I went to go hang out with these church planters, I thought I was going to hang out with a bunch of young folks. And a lot of times in this area, I feel like I'm the old fart. Anybody ever been there? Right? Like I, I hang out like a, this is a young man's game, church planting. And I went down there, and met a guy who was 68. Now, I want you to think about this: he's 68, he's planting a church in Florida. He's winning five people to Jesus a week that are Muslims as he shares the gospel in the area of Florida. And so there is a movement, and that's why I want to just kind of share this with you. There's a movement of God's hand working in the hearts of his church today. And he's working this out where he wants to share who he is with every area that does not have the good news of who Jesus is. He wants to move into those areas and share his heart. And so that's one of the reasons why this church, as we move forward, will continue to be a church that multiplies and begins to measure our success by not what we keep, but by what we give and send. So this is one of the things I want to share with you, it's something that's exciting to me, and it pumped me up to see that many people of God's hand moving towards church planting. So let me catch you up if you're just joining us in this series that we've been doing called Engage. Over the last couple months, we have covered different ways that we were hoping and praying that God would engage his people and his community on. We've talked about um, just engaging in fellowship. We've talked about engaging in something called stewardship, which is how we manage the things that God gives us. We've talked about engaging generationally so it's not just about hanging out with one generation but having the diversity of all generations working together toward the mission that God has. We've talked about the work that God has for people and that we need to engage in hard work and not avoid it. We actually talked about engaging with God in a personal way through different habits or disciplines. We talked about reengaging the core family and how important that is to be engaged with the core family. Now, we've talked about engaging with our feelings that especially the guys is an area that we struggle with at times is engaging with our own feelings and how that works in our relationship with God. And then we've also talked about engaging with our neighbors. And what does it mean? Who is our neighbor? And how do we engage in that process? And today, uh, our pastors, as we were preparing this series, said we need to talk about how do we engage with the morality of who we are and who we should be as a people. They felt like, as we talked about morals and we talked about morality, they felt like as a society we're very disengaged from moral thinking. And so I want to share with you a message today called Engaging in the Moral Minority. Because there is certainly a moral majority that happens all the time. And the moral majority is really what pushes the culture to think a certain way, behave a certain way, look at things a certain way. And what's anchored into the concept or the word of morality or morals is how do you decide what is right, and what is wrong. Now, I know this might seem oversimplified, but um, as I go on, I got to tell you, this is probably one of the most complicated messages you're going to weather in this series because it gets into things like ethics and values and virtues and philosophies and the way that different people think and how they assemble that. So complicated message, but hopefully by the end, it's something that's made simple for you as you look at what the Bible has to say about this topic. So let me me give you a concept of how morality has been shaped and how we think differently about it as a culture by giving you some extreme examples of what happens within a closed system. In other words, how people are talking about their morality within a closed group. There is a group of Eskimos that for many hundreds of years had a certain moral way of thinking that will probably be, when I share it with you, repulsive. So one of the things they would do is when a certain person reached a certain age and they were no longer able to keep up with the migratory status of the Eskimos across different ice areas and ice sheets, it was normal, it was morally right for this culture to leave that elderly person on a block of ice to die from exposure over time so they didn't harm their family. And people would look at that and say, well, is that right? Is that wrong? Current moral thinking in our society would say, well, we're not able to judge whether it's right or it's wrong because it's something that's within their culture. Now, we're going to get to that in a second, but that's, that, I'll give you another extreme example. If you have done Roman history, you know that in Rome, if you had an unwanted child or you had a child that was deformed and was not going to be able to thrive well. It was legally and morally acceptable to leave that child on the side of a hill to die of exposure. And that was legally okay. It was morally okay. And it was right as far as the government was concerned in Rome. It was considered a merciful death instead of making that child live out their life in a way that would hamper them in society. So What you need to know about morality in general is it's right and wrong, decided within a closed system, and it might shock you how some of this works out. Maybe if you go South America, you remember this one group called the Aztecs. Remember them? Where it was morally right for them to sacrifice human sacrifice by pulling out the beating heart of a sacrifice system to offer to God. So you look at these things, and and, and if you're like me, I go, okay, I know that society tells us we're not allowed to impose moral judgment on other cultures. But is there a way to come at this where we begin to think, hey, there is a way to understand what really is morally right and morally wrong that maybe is a higher form or a better way of thinking when it comes to morality. And then based on that, how can you and I engage in moral thinking and moral behavior that's not based on our feelings it's not based on our culture. It's not based on a closed system around us, but it's based on something deeper, more meaningful, and maybe a little bit more solid. So if you've got a Bible, open up to James 1. We're going to look at verses 19 to 25, and I believe this passage and its context gives us a different way of thinking about morality, and quite possibly it's the minority way of thinking with regard to morality and right and wrong. So again, James 1, 19-25, listen to the word of the Lord. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word "...planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So this is a fun message for me in a way. It's a difficult message for me in a way because um, some of you may or may not know, but this is where I actually did my graduate work and did a lot with medical ethics and medical uh, morality, and how those kind of decisions were made. And it always amazed me to watch culture make decisions, but then also have this Christian background and Christian worldview and have these two things, attention all the time. And so what I want to do is I want to show you that there are some things that overlap about morality. There's some things that are the same between Christian morality and the world and the way they think, but there's also some things that are quite unique. And the things that are unique, I think, are the things that might draw out your Christian morality so you can engage with Christian morality in a better way. So here's the first thing I want you to know about morality. It's expressed, it has expressed values. So every moral system, every way of moral thinking, all morality, has what we would call expressed values. Now you see these expressed values right at the beginning of this Christian text that James is writing. Look what he says. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be what? Quick to? And slow to? And don't become? So so these are values, or you might even call these virtues, So he's showing you the external evidence of something that morally this person is thinking about that should be happening inside of people. And he's saying that based on that, he sees these behaviors, slow to speak, right? Quick to listen, slow to become angry. Now he's not even got to the core of what causes this yet, but he's saying this is the virtue. This is the thing you see outside of it. Probably the person in our country that is the most famous for virtue is one of the founding fathers. Anybody know which one it was? Nope, it's okay. Just me, it's all right. I, know I, I I'll give you a chance to Google it. Didn't get it yet, okay. It's Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, really, Benjamin Franklin. Now listen, I'm not telling you his morality is right. John's like, are you out of your mind? Listen, let me get you there. Benjamin Franklin knew his life was jacked up, okay? Even when he wasn't smoking opium. That's a different topic for a different day. But he wanted to change the morality of his life. And how he went about it is he actually created third. virtues. And he would intentionally on one week, 13 breaks down actually so he could actually double it up and actually have it as the weeks throughout the year. But what he would do is he would get, here's his virtues. I just want you to hear these and then I want you to see these are expressed virtues or values. The Bible has them. Ben had them too. But listen to what his were: Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality. I mean, don't spend a ton of money. Industry, Sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness. That's a funny one. He must have been like a middle schooler at heart. Okay. Tranquility, chastity, which he never got this one right, just follow the history, okay? And humility, the one he said, by the way, he struggled with the most. Okay. But what's interesting about his list is he only add he had 12 originally, he add the 13th, after he was hanging out with some Quakers who said, "Pen, you've got some seer, severe issues with humility. And he said, okay, I'll add humility to that. And what he did with these is he worked these out. He struggled with pride. He struggled with all of these. But what he thought was, if I have an aim to aim at these, and I work hard enough each day with these expressed values, they'll eventually somehow sow themselves into my life. Now, the reason I bring him up is I want him to kind of ruminate in your mind, because I think the way Ben Franklin thought is the way most of our people, even to this day, think in our country. We even think about Christianity, that Christianity is a set of rules. We think it's a set of virtues or values, and we aim to work hard to hit the values or the virtues without ever asking what really brings about that transformation. And, and, and that's So both have values, but the way that they go about achieving the values are very different. And I'll get to it in a second. But Christians do not try to achieve the value. That's going to surprise you. They don't strive for the value. There's something else that happens internally that's very different. That's unique. I'll get to that. Number two, morality seeks to produce right behavior or right living. Again, it's very focused on the external. For a man's anger does not bring about a righteous life that God desires. See it? The value, the end result. It it, it means to change or see some type of different behavior. And what I want you to understand is every religion, every philosophy, Thinks this way at some core. But here's the problem. This is why I wanted to build this for you. Christianity is not about behavior change. We've made it about behavior change. But at the core, the Christian faith is not about changing behavior. It's about changing heart. And at the core, it's much harder to change the heart. It's much easier to change behavior. Let me give you an example. How many of y'all raised some youngins? Raise some kids. How many of y'all got some kids, right? Yep. You're not even going to admit you got some youngins. Come on now. And so when you want to change a youngin's behavior, you enact certain things, right? Disciplines, right? Certain things that are punishment. And you can curve their behavior. You can modify their behavior. But if you have ever parented a kid, you realize the one thing you can't do is give them a good heart or change their heart, can you? You can change the behavior, but there's something at the core of their being. It's interesting how this plays out. Has any of you ever had to teach your kid to lie? No. It's like, where'd that come from? It's just in there, right? The Bible calls that original sin. It's just inside their nature. And what happens is Christianity turns into, I'm going to figure out ways like Ben did to do certain things in my behavior that I'll stop lying. And then what you realize is the behavior never really Changes. Let me give an example again from Ben. It's not about right living. Here's what I want to tell you: it's about someone living in you rightly. Now that's tweetable. Let me give it to you again. It's not about right living, it's about someone living rightly in you. So when Benjamin Franklin tried to figure out how to become more humble, he said, I'm going to imitate Jesus and Socrates. That was his Method. I'm going to imitate the behavior that I saw that they had. And if I imitate it long enough, my hope is it will take root. Now, what's funny about that is we've got a modern phrase for that, right? Fake it till you, come on, y'all know it. Fake it till you, this is how most of our culture lives with regard to morality in thinking and deciding what's right and what's wrong and what produces good character inside of me. There was a contemporary of Benjamin Franklin, a guy named George Whitfield. Anybody know who George Whitfield was? George Whitfield was a part of a club called the Holiness Club. That'll tell you something about George, right? And he hung out with these two dudes named the Wesley brothers. They had some theological arguments. But what was cool was George Whitfield was considered the greatest preacher of his day. Like the guy was phenomenal. He got kicked out of the church. They didn't like what he was sharing. It was a little too radical. He was not sharing about behavior or morality. He was sharing about this born again relationship that people had to have with Jesus. Literally, but he was so eloquent in the way he did it. And thousands of people would show up to hear this guy talk on the side of hills and and just, you know, in towns, like in the square. Like he gets kicked out of the church. He's like, that's fine. Just like the Wesley brothers, I'll go to the, I'll just go out into the fields. And people flocked to hear this good news that wasn't about having to behave you better, but about having this transformation inside of him. And Ben and George had quite a few run-ins. Because they're contemporaries in the early country. My favorite story about Benjamin Franklin, this will tell you a difference in the preacher and the guy who was trying to figure out morality. Ben knew that uh, George was preaching in Philadelphia. And so he said, I'm going to go hear this guy because I know he's phenomenal. I know he's good. I mean, preaching was like, you know, like reality TV for their day. You got to understand that. All right. Because crazy stuff happened in the church. All right. And so he goes to hear this guy who's one of the best preachers ever to preach. But he knows he's such a gifted preacher that he's going to fall under conviction. So he decides to leave his money at home. That's Ben, okay? I'm leaving my cash at home because if this guy preaches really well and then they press an offering, I'm going to feel convicted to put something in the plate. So he leaves the money at home. He called it his purse. That was okay for guys to have a purse back then, not like the man purse. They had a different kind of purse, but it was okay. So he left the purse at home and he comes to the church and George preaches this fired up. Awesome message. And it's so good. Ben leans over to the guy next to him and says, can I borrow some money? He borrowed money from the dude next to him in the pew to put in the offering plate. So again, he was more concerned a lot of times about the outcome than he was the heart. But let me tell you, George Whitfield began to do something I asked you all to do about three months ago. He began to pray for Benjamin Franklin. Earnestly with all of his heart, for his neighbor. Let me get to that in a moment I'll tell you the rest of the story of these two gentlemen, these two contemporaries that were connected at the founding of our nation. But the third thing I want to tell you about morality is this. It has an external origin. Morality has an external origin. We would love to believe, and this is the lie of this generation, our previous generation, and every generation that we get to make the decision of what we morally think is right and what we morally think is wrong. But the reality is every moral decision, every framework of your thinking and my thinking came from somewhere else. Whether it was a philosopher, whether it was scripture, whether it was religion, whether it was parents, upbringing something outside of you and i shaped our moral thinking of how we said this is right and this is wrong think about it let me give you a couple examples let's say that you're an atheist okay i'm not down on atheists if you're here i'll love you if you're an atheist all right because i was once an atheist okay but let me tell you what the origin is how do you decide that you're going to be an atheist whether you realize it or not whether you figured it out or not you opted into this book written a long time ago, called The Origin of the Species, which says that all life came from a simple, single-cell transformation of random mutations through something called natural selection, which, by the way, is a faith proposition, not a scientific one, because it can't be proven or experimented upon. But what's interesting about that is then that shapes your thinking of then what is morally right, and morally wrong. And then maybe a lot of atheists I know that are friends of mine will say, well, we don't base our morality on atheism. We're going to borrow from humanism and we're going to pull some morality from that, from the enlightened period. And then they combine them. But whether you combine them or mix them up or put it in a big mixer and shake it, you're borrowing externally every time from somewhere else. And then you're deciding, I think this is right and this is wrong. But did you really? Because really all you did was borrow things from other places. Think about marriage. Let me give you one for marriage. I grew up and my mom taught me that marriage is 50-50. And then she told me once you had kids, you got zero. That's what she told me. <laughs> she said, there's 50-50, then you got youngins, and you got nothing left, okay? And maybe she got wore out. Maybe I wore her out. That's a different problem, okay? But, but that's what she thought. She thought when she got married, there was a 50%, a 50% dynamic to marriage. And then I began to read scripture, and I got a new moral way of thinking about marriage. She didn't have this benefit. So reading scriptures, I learned that actually marriage is 100, 100. That there were these defined roles of husband and wife, and each had 100% their part and 100% the other part. And then when both parties were working through 100%, it, it's the best the marriage could be. And so I learned a different way. But, but that was, both of those were external to me. I just wake up and have an epiphany one day and go, oop, I got it. Both of those were outside of myself that I decided and I had to say, which one is true? See, Christians think of the Bible sometimes in the right way, and they sometimes think about it in the wrong way. We look at the Bible, and then sometimes we go, here's what moral thinking is. This is what is right, and this is what's wrong. And the Bible does teach that, by the way. But then they only make the Bible a list of right and wrongs. And they miss the fact that there's this living, breathing person in Scripture. His name is Jesus. And he's throughout all the Scriptures And he doesn't just teach us what's right or wrong. At the heart of the Christian faith, if you've never heard this, I hope you start to get this. He comes and he dwells and lives in the person. And then he convicts them through the spirit of what's right and what's wrong based on the Bible. And then the power for moral living is connected to the person of Jesus, but not to a list of right and wrongs. Look at what it says in verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. In other words, be moral. Get rid of the evil that's so prevalent humbly, humbly, outside of you, accept the word planted in you. So the word of God, if you've never heard this, Jesus is the living word, is supplanted and planted in us. And not only does he save us from ourselves, but he transforms our thinking and our morality and the way that we think. Let me, let me give you a quote from someone who had studied Whitfield and had studied Franklin. And it's both enlightening but also kind of sad. Whitfield routinely pressed Franklin about his need to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. This is a quote from Ben Franklin He used indeed sometimes to pray for my conversion but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. It's interesting, isn't it? Ben Franklin thought he could achieve morality by just working harder and having greater virtues. And George Whitfield watched this man, knew he was a genius, but knew he had missed the heart of the soul of faith, which is it's not about rules, but about a person. The fourth thing is, Morality teeters between hypocrisy and integrity in almost every system when people make it about rules instead of a relationship. Let me me tell you what I mean by that. So it teeters between hypocrisy and integrity. You've probably seen this. People that say, I believe this, but I live this way, right? It's kind of our nature versus, you know, like our morality. And you see them in conflict all the time. And hopefully what you begin to see as we've been talking about this today is that the problem is that morality only attempts to change behavior. It only attempts to change the outside. True Christianity literally changes our nature. The very nature of how we think, the very nature of how we live, the very nature of how we draw breath and life. Look at what it says in the rest of James. Do not merely listen to the word. I'm telling you, friends, there's a lot of people in church today they come to church, attend church, are faithful to church, are faithful to different aspects of their faith, but they merely just listen to the word. They never engage with it. And then they, so they deceive themselves. He says, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like a man who looks himself in the mirror. In other words, there's this lack of understanding. There's this lack of really knowing the very inner being of who you are and how you're made and what's going on inside you. And after looking at themselves, they go away and immediately forget. They forget what they look like. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Let me tell you what I see. And and I'll probably never stop seeing this. I see an incredible sinner saved by the grace of God. The moment I think that I'm a better moral person because of how I've worked it out and my virtues like Ben did, I've already failed. Because that stuff will wane based on my mood, my my temperament, right? What I ate last night, right? That, That changes everything. Who I'm in a relationship with right now and how well it's going. But when there's an inward change of being born again, there's something more solid here. It says, but the man who looks intently... Into the perfect law, in other words, the scriptures, which the scriptures have one purpose to reveal Jesus, that gives freedom, not bondage, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he'll be blessed in all that he does. You know that um, Martin Luther, if you don't know about a guy named Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, different guy, Martin Luther, guy back in the Reformation. Um, he struggled with what you're reading today. He struggled with the book of James because he didn't like the fact that James was both faith and there was this dynamic of work it out. He thought it should just be faith, okay? But what people miss, and Luther missed in this, is that real faith does work itself out, but not because you worked harder at it, but because you surrendered more to the one that would work it out. That's the difference. This is why when you, if you're here for a while at this church, you're going to hear this over and over and over again. You're going to hear one of the most important things you'll do. Every day, church family, is a certain habit. What's the habit? Hang time, right? That you would hang out with God every day. And hang time involves two components. They're very simple, aren't they? That you would spend time in his word, hearing his voice, but that you would also pray and increase the depth of your prayer life and communication with God. When these two things happen, you begin to engage literally with the person of Jesus in so many different facets. It was interesting that this morning's devotion and you version was out of 2 Timothy three sixteen. If you've never read this passage, great passage, mark it down, memorize it, highlight it in your Bible or in your U version or whatever you got, which says all scriptures what God breathed. God breathed and given for reproof and correction and training that the person or the man of God might be thoroughly equipped to every good work. In other words, that scripture gets infused in us through the person of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit grabs that and it means to live that out in a living relationship as we engage with him. I want to read to you what your church members wrote in today's devotion. One said, God revealed to me today where I am rebellious and lacking through the word. That's someone that looked in the mirror and wants God to not just reveal it, but live it. Another person said, may the Lord give me the courage, and I know this person's going through a difficult season, to stand fast against the hard times and defend the truth of his word. That's someone who's looking for sustenance and encouragement that God's word would be alive in them through a difficult season. This person, long-winded, so I cut it a little bit. <laughs> Don't go back and look, see who it is, okay? That's mean, okay? But this person said, um, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, the word is alive. It, makes, it takes on so much uh, more meaning and ever-changing lessons as it amazes me. You can hear teaching on the same scriptures from a couple different speakers, and each would teach you something a little different. I remember reading... It is a non-believer. This is a person who grew up in church all their life. I remember reading as a non-believer, and it was cold and out of date. But after my acceptance, it turned into an amazing journey through a vibrant book. It takes an awesome creator to design something like that, doesn't it? So this person grew up in their church all their life. But in other words, it wasn't until they discovered what Whitfield knew that they need to be born again, born from above, born anew, that the word took on all of this beauty and light. This is what God wants. So where does real moral thinking come from? It comes from a relationship with Christ, which is why today, here's my challenge for you. Engage the only original source to live out a perfect moral life, Jesus. This is what Ben missed. It's what George Whitfield understood. Think about the difference. Ben tried to mimic Jesus. George said, let him be born in your heart. Because when he's born inside of us, born from above, having a born again relationship, he's the one who transforms our life. And by the way, church family, this is why if you've been hurt in the church, wounded by the church, hurt by Christians, more than likely, not always, but quite often, it's because someone wasn't walking in a living relationship with Jesus at that moment. They were walking in a relationship with their religion. And there is a big difference. Look at what it says in Matthew seven fourteen, 14. i put that in your notes for you. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. But only a few will find it. Here, here's what I want you to see. And here's what I want you to, to think and respond. The reason we call the gospel the good news is because it's not about something you do. It's not about behavior. It's about receiving a person. It's about falling completely and utterly in love with the person of Jesus. That when you read his life, look at his life, examine his life, talk about his life to other people, whatever the medium is by which his life becomes encountered or part of yours, that you become so enamored and so amazed with the person that he is, that you fall in love with him and you want him to dwell in you and live in you through the Holy Spirit. You get to such an end of who you are, an end of of your own self, that you're like, I just want Christ to live in me and to live out the life that he wants to live in this world again. Did you know why the church is called the Bride of Christ? Do you know why? Let me tell you why he decided to call the church his bride. Because he reindwells his bride, and he's still alive on earth through the church, through his people that are genuinely committed and have a born-again relationship with him. This is why this is so important. So let me declare the gospel to you before we participate in something that he gave us so we would never forget this good news. You see, Jesus lived the moral life you and I couldn't live. For 33 and a half years, over 2,000 years ago, he never sinned in thought. He never sinned in deed. He was a sinless human being. The only way, by the way, you could ever have a sinless human being is there's something unique about that person. Wouldn't you agree? And Jesus was not only fully man, but he was fully God. And in his divinity and in the humanity, his humanity connects with us, but his divinity is what has the power to live without sin. And after he leads this, leads this perfect and sinless life, he says, I realize how broken the world is, and I've come for one purpose, one purpose, and it's so that I might lay down my life for all of you because I know you'll never make it. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be moral enough. There's nothing you will ever do to perfectly please a perfect and holy God. But I'm going to bridge the gap for you. I'm going to die for you. Because he understood what the scriptures say. You want to talk about a moral dilemma. The scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus knew it was that powerful that it took the shedding of blood. And it would only take someone who is eternal, divine, that could shed their blood, that would be powerful enough to forgive all of the sins of all the world for anyone that would want it. That's that's a unique gospel. And so that's why Jesus can say things when he's talking to the religious folks where he says, come to me, all who are burdened, right, or heavy laden or weary, and I will give you rest. See, when you come to Jesus, he doesn't give you more rules. He lives in you, and you are excited to live for him. He enables you with the power to live a holy life. That's good news to me. I don't know about you, because I got tired of hearing all the rules in church that I couldn't meet up to. But when I heard that someone had already paid for everything that needed to be paid, and all I had to do was put my trust and my hope and my belief in that person... That was a different, life-changing thing, and it changed my heart. And all of a sudden, I wanted to read the Word. I wanted to pray and spend time with God. I wanted to serve Him. I wanted to share His good news with other people. There was a radical, born-again, life-change moment, and it's all about Him. And when that happens, you embrace the good news, and you commit your life to it. And trust me, every day you're going to get up, and you're going to recommit because you want to be more and more and more in love with the person of Jesus. That's a different moral perspective than I just want to be a good person, isn't it? So if you're one of those folks that you're tired, whether you've been in church a long time or you've been in church a short time and you don't want to be weary anymore, you don't want to be tired anymore, you don't want to be told about the rules anymore, today's your day because this is the day that God's going to set you free because you will become a part of the moral minority because not many people think this way. The moral majority is ones telling you, you got to live better on your own instead of letting Christ live and richly dwell in you. So let's do that together through prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your good news. Thank you so much for the person of Jesus. Father, I thank you that I wore myself out and exhausted myself for so many years trying to be a good person and you taught me I just couldn't get there there was too many things that were done to me too many things that were broken inside of me too, too many things that just God I can't even begin to explain all the things that were messed up inside my life and I'm so thankful for the person of Jesus that he lived the perfect life I couldn't live and that he continues to want to live that life not only in me but in all the folks that are here God it's his desire to do so because of his great love for us and so Father we want to take this moment we want to ask you to examine our heart the very core of who we are and if there's an area specifically a sinful area an area that, of pain an area where there's been wrong done to us or we've done to someone else we want to take that moment we want to be specific and we want to confess that to you because we already know that you know, but there's something healing and just saying, here's where I'm hurting. Here's what's wrong. So if you have an area of your life right now, would you take this moment of prayer for you and God only to hear and confess that to him? Father, thank you that you made your faith and the Christian faith a faith about relationship and not rules. Father, thank you at the very beginning of Genesis. Right there, we see the plan that when the fall of mankind had happened because of sin coming into the world, then you give us this perfect picture of the serpent bruising or cutting the heel of the offspring of the woman. But one day the serpent's head will be crushed by her offspring we know that right there you were talking about your one and only son coming into the world at a specific point in time it was always your plan to save the people you love through the person of Jesus Father we just want to thank you for what he's done in our lives that he died for us that he lived for us that he rose from the dead to have power over victory and death for us and for your glory. Father, in this moment, we just want to tell you how much we love you. And if you would just take this time and tell the Lord how much you appreciate what Jesus has done for you personally. Just tell him thank you for what he's done. Father, by hope and faith and trust, we now receive your spirit because we commit our lives to your care. As we commit to your care, we ask that you would come inside of us. You would change the very nature of who we are. You would change our hearts. You would give us a heart after you to live for you, to love for you, and to share your good news to every person that we encounter so that they might not be entrapped by the rules of this world or the rules of a faith system or the rules of of philosophy or virtue, but that they might be set free by the power of your Son, Jesus. We commit this day to you and we ask that your Holy Spirit would dwell in us in a rich and wonderful way and all God's people said, amen.